That song just makes you feel like you ought to keep singing the Lord of all for the next half hour because it wouldn't be long enough. It's, uh, it ends too soon. But I know it's still resonating in your hearts as we think about that great gospel message of what Christ has done for us. Jesus Messiah rescued the sinners, the ransom for our salvation. What an amazing message it is. What a great gospel it is. Our Father, we can't help but just talk to you for a few minutes right now and just say how much we love you and we thank you as we take in a reminder of the indescribable gift Christ Jesus who willingly paid the price of our sinfulness, who took it upon himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, the perfect for the imperfect. Our Father, we just want to thank you so much for loving us with that kind of magnitude. And so, Lord, I pray that you might help us to show and demonstrate our love back for you, not just in our praises, but in our application of your message to us. You speak to us. You talk to us. You, you tell us how we ought to live. You, you tell us as a father who loves us, giving counsel to the children who are dear to your heart, and you urge us, you, you ask us to obey you because it is good for us. It goes well with us. Your plans are to prosper us and cause us to be successful. And you have given yourself for us. So Lord, I pray that this morning during this uh, scripture time and your words to us, I pray that the Holy Spirit will find hearts everywhere all over, 100%, open, devoted, loyal, and willing to engage in the changes that you want to bring in our lives. I pray this because only through your power can this take place. There's no amount of verbal persuasion that can act on people's lives. It is only as the Spirit of God does His work in our hearts. So we ask you, Lord, for the great name of Jesus' sake. Amen. You ever been part of a class detention? You ever caused a class detention? I bet you Powers did. I used to hate class detentions. Always felt like they were really unfair. How come all of us have to pay the price for a couple of bad guys in the class? It was usually guys too. The girls were always good in class. I, I wonder how the girls must have felt. Why should we have a class detention because there are misbehaving boys in the class? I've often wanted to ask a teacher, what, what was the deal with class detention? Did they teach you that in university? That that's how you do things? What did it really teach us? It taught us, I think, a couple of things. It, it taught us the honor of not ratting out your friends, right? We will not tell who's responsible for this. Now, that's, that's really honorable, isn't it? It, it taught us the, the, the honor of covering over sinfulness. I got your back. You've got my back the next time, right? That's the deal. I wonder if there's another way of thinking about that, another angle that maybe, maybe teachers always had in mind that I never thought about when I was younger. Maybe they wanted to teach us that it would be more honorable to actually reveal the one who is misbehaving or two for their own good, that they might be disciplined, that it, this kind of disobedience and bad behavior might be chased far from them. What if, we, um, what if we learn that, uh, that when someone does something wrong, it does affect everybody? We have um, within our culture something that we hold on to with almost religious-like belief. And in fact, it has infected the church as well. And that is individualism. What I do is none of your business. Uh, no, uh, 
No group's going to sort of exert pressure on me and tell me what I'm going to do. If I don't like the rules, I'll just change them to be the way that I like them. I have the right to, to make up my own rules. And then the big one. The only sin is getting caught. But then there's always this little supporting document, supporting comment that sort of slides out to the side of all those discussions and it goes something like this. As long as no one gets hurt. My business is my own business. I can do whatever I want to do so long as no one gets hurt. That's the, the ethical limitations to this individualism. So let me ask you a question. Does my own private business ever affect anybody else? Is it, is it true that um, what I do in the privacy of my own life is nobody else's business, has no effect on anybody else? Turn your Bibles, please, with me to Joshua chapter 7. I want to set before you a statement this morning, and I want to investigate it. It's in the form of a question. Isn't my brother's sin between himself and the Lord? I've heard that said lots of times. Well, it's just between her and the Lord. Is it? Is that what God thinks? What does the Bible have to say about this kind of thing? Can my sin hurt somebody else, even if others don't know about it? Even if it doesn't involve anyone else, allegedly? If you've been following along in our series, you'll note that at the very end of Joshua chapter 6, after this great victory, there's this wonderful conclusion statement. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. All is well. And then one verse later, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And we're left reeling really quickly, like, what happened? What happened in between the... The Lord is with Joshua, and now the anger of the Lord burns against Israel because if you've been with us over these weeks, Joshua 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all we can see is that Israel's following the Lord with all of their hearts. What happened? When did Israel act unfaithfully to God? When did Israel do something that caused the Lord's anger to burn against them? By the way, you never want the Lord's anger to burn against you. The word there is devouring. It's, it's not, he's not just a slow simmer. It's enraged. Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Do you remember what they were? In the battle of Jericho. God said, I'm going to give you this great victory, but I want everything given to me. I want all of it. I'm going to put you on a blessing fast, a benefit fast. It's going to be about me. You're going to focus on me. It's going to be totally about me. You're going to give me everything. That's what you're going to do. And he had told them that if you don't, you're going to make the camp of Israel liable to destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So, as a result, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven. Interestingly, Ai means ruins in Hebrew, and beth Aven means house of iniquity. To the east of Bethel, house of God. Certainly some imagery going on here. And told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. It had worked in the past. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people have to go up against Ai. It's like a piece of cake. Can of corn, Joshua. Send two or three thousand men to take it. Do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. 
serious misjudgment because we find out in the end of chapter 8 that there were 12,000 people there. They were hiding. So about 3,000 men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries, struck struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. You've heard that description before, but not of God's people. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say? Now that Israel's been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go. Consecrate the people. Tell them. Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In the morning, present yourselves, tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan. I want you to notice the play on the words takes and took here. The clan the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. He who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward and he took the Zerahites. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. And then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Hardly needs much commentary, does it? It's one of those stories that's pretty detailed and 
God makes it pretty abundantly clear of how he feels about this thing. But maybe there's some insights that, that we ought to look at a little bit closer, just for a few moments. Under that question, isn't my brother's sin between himself and the Lord? You may still be thinking, well, why not? Why shouldn't it be? See, there was this guy named uh, Achan. He stole some stuff from God. Secretly. Stuff that was set apart. Actually sanctified, devoted, it says. Stuff that was set apart purposely for God. And it says in the text that the Israelites acted unfaithfully. And God's anger burned against Israel. Now, um, God has given his own conclusion on how he views these things. It doesn't matter what we want to think or how we would like to reconfigure this or try to explain it away. Simply put, in terms of uh, how God views things, there is no individualism in the people of God community. This is a study in corporate solidarity, how God sees things. Keep in mind, we're learning about God here. This is not a study of Achan. It's not a study of Israel. It's not a study of of battle strategies. The Bible is a study of God. It's how he views life. It's how he views how people act in life. We're, We're learning about him so that we're learning to be his children, what it means to be the people of God. And I can tell you that he views us as a corporate community. The sin of one becomes the sin of all. If I understand this text correctly, Von Rad, an Old Testament scholar, says this, individualism is taught nowhere in Scripture. What may be of a cultural value is not a biblical one. No one in covenant with God lives to themselves Himself or herself, no one dies to himself or herself if you're in a covenant community with God. There were signs, I suppose, that Achan might be susceptible to this kind of thing. It seems that he had developed a taste for the material. If you notice back in the text as we were reading the description of of Achan and What was taken from him, he had cattle and donkeys and sheep. Achan wasn't taking these things because his family was starving. And they somehow in great poverty needed to sneak something out of the devoted things and and sport it over to their tent and hide it there. No, no. He had donkeys and cattle and sheep. Achan was well off. He had a real taste for the material. And it seems that when the leaders handed down the vision that God had given them, that this was going to be one of those times where they would give everything over to God. Somehow Achan determined that he would have his own interpretation of that. And it's because everybody else is going along with what Joshua is suggesting. I'm not not really going to buy into that. I'll take a little bit for myself. They can devote things if they want to God, but I'm not complying and um, I don't think anything will really happen. He must have thought that. It says in the text, when he saw in the plunder a beautiful designer robe from Babylonia, he wanted to have it. He could just see himself sporting the cosmopolitan look of a Babylonian well-dressed man. You know what I'm talking about? Why would I let an Armani suit go to waste and a coach purse? Why would I do that? That seems like it's ridiculous. In fact, it doesn't seem like good stewardship. I can just see it going through his mind as he's thinking and looking at stuff and saying, you know, I I realize God wants all this stuff devoted and he's going to burn everything and and he's going to keep all the the valuable things like gold and silver. But this, this coat, it's important. I will look so fine in this coat. It's tough for him. He had to go hide it under his tent, you know. When was he going to bring this thing out? Was he going to take a secret trip to Babylon 
come back and say, look what I bought. I don't know. But um, you can be sure that because he had a taste for fine things, we, we in Canada, we have a taste for fine things. We have fine things. He was reinterpreting total devotion to God. It doesn't mean the Armani suit and the coach purse. That, it doesn't mean that, surely. And, and the, the, the silver and the gold. Instead of complete surrender and devotion to God, he evaluated his thankfulness to the Lord on the low side. It says in the text that um, he saw, he coveted, or desired, and took. You ever heard that sequence of events before? That that grows straight out of Eden. Nothing's changed. When Eve saw that the forbidden fruit was good to the eyes, and she desired it, and she took it and gave some to her husband who was right there with her. The sin of Achan was he was a covetous man. When God puts us on a blessing fast, a benefit fast, in, in many ways a fast of any sort, it reveals a whole lot about ourselves. It revealed in Achan's heart that, um, that God wasn't enough for him, that he needed more things. That's why sometimes God puts you in a waiting room of some sort where, where the benefits aren't flowing and the blessings aren't being poured out. And you're left. You're left to determine whether or not Jesus is enough. It seems that um, he came to the idea that who would know any of this? It's my own business. Why should it matter? I guess he was pretending to be giving like everybody else probably, right? Oh, yeah, let's give it all to God while he's digging a hole in his tent. Is it wrong if no one knows? I mean, what's the big deal? He may have even said, you know, um, Lord, I'll use this money somewhere for you. I'll find a way. I'll wear this coat to, to try and teach people about God sometime, you know. Maybe I'll even give it away. Because God so identifies with his people. This is what I I think we learn here. Because God so identifies with his people that when someone robs God, he or she is in effect robbing the whole people of God. In fact, in this case, robbing them of their purity and their honesty and their truth before God. Didn't you hear what God said? You've stolen from me. You've lied to me. You've set yourself up for liability to destruction. That community was no longer pure and clean and honest and truthful before God. They weren't blessable. Until God is everything in your life, you will continue to have a craving to fulfill that vacant spot in your life with other things. There will be alternative affections in your life. Desires that you have will replace your quest for God. That's what was happening here. And simply put, the hidden sin of one person has a chain reaction effect. You know, when we just at a surface look at this and say, hey, what's the big deal? It was his sin. It was private. He hid it in his tent. What's the deal here? No, no. Have you paid attention to this story? There's a chain reaction of effects that take place. The first and most horrendous one is the divine presence of God withdraws. Not just from Achan, but from the community itself. God's anger burned against Israel. A verse before God is with Israel. Now he's against Israel. 
You look down in verse 12 and, and, and God says that uh, I will not be with you anymore unless you deal with your sin, unless you deal with this issue. I'm not going to be with you. The success affecting presence of God withdraws. I often wonder what it would be like if the church of Jesus Christ really took this stuff seriously. I, I often wonder, in light, of, in light of the blessings that we do enjoy, I wonder what God would do with a people of God who were so passionately committed to their purity and their truthfulness and their honesty and their holiness before God. I wonder what God would do with a people like that. This was to be a no-problem, a no-brainer, a piece-of-cake victory. And by the way, God had already told them in Joshua chapter 1, listen, I'm going to give you this land. I'm delivering this land to you. Just go. But he said, you must obey me. When God pulls out, we're done. The thing tanks. Not only was there um, a divine presence withdrawal, but there was also a serious community defeat here. Did you notice it? Do we just skim over the loss of 36 lives as if it's no big deal? Who cares? Another 36 people are dead. What's the big deal? It matters to God. 36 deaths. Maybe there were key individuals. Maybe the army was going to walk with a limp now. Who knows who they were? Gone from their midst, taken away. A permanent loss in the people of God. I can't help, I've always believed that there's a connection between this story and 1 Corinthians 11 at the Lord's table. Where the Lord himself tells us that That um, we are not to eat and drink without recognizing the body of the Lord. And I don't believe it's just the body of Jesus Christ. Because the body of the Lord is the total Christian community. We are the body of Christ. We're not to separate the two. And, And so it says there, that is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. I can't help but think that in any given community, the sicknesses and the weaknesses and the deaths that we encounter often are related to this kind of incident. Where there are people in the community of faith Practicing heinous, hidden sins from God and thinking it doesn't matter. And thinking it won't affect. And by the way, these people, the 36 who died, they hadn't taken anything from God. They hadn't put, in any, they hadn't put anything under their tents. The people who are sick and weak and perhaps die in 1 Corinthians 11. I'm convinced that the parallel is real. They're not necessarily the ones who are sinning. They happen to be in a sinful community. This is a serious matter. The hearts of the people melted, it says here. The last time we heard that description, that was the description of God's enemies. Now God's people are being described as God's enemy. And the spies go to check out, do some espionage on I, and they come back with a really dumb report. Why? Because sin makes you stupid. What does Joshua do? He falls on his face. This courageous, bold, confident leader in the Lord is taken down. 
He's on his face. He, he is down, discouraged. He's, he's lost his confidence in the direction. You hear him talking to God. He's saying, maybe we should have just stayed on the other side of the river. Now he's, he's second-guessing the very word that God had given to him. That's what happens. There's a chain reaction effect because God will not allow us to harbor sinfulness. He won't. The enemy's emboldened. It says that the enemies are, are going to pay attention to what's going on. They've noticed that I has routed us. It's going to give confidence to the enemies. Do you not understand that the, that the evil one is prowling around like a lion looking for who he can devour? That The very thing here. It's the same thing as us. Who do you think he's looking for? He's looking for the weak. He's looking for the ones who are hiding sin and think it's okay. He's looking for the ones who've lost their confidence and they don't even know why. They've lost their confidence because someone else is sinful around them and the effects are on their lives. They don't even know why, why they're, they're no longer confident in God's word and they're, they're second-guessing everything they hear from God all of a sudden. Not because of their own sin, but because of the sin of their brother or sister, someone else in the community, perhaps. The enemy sees it, seizes a moment, feeding frenzy. And the future? It's going to be a failure. That's what God says. Unless you deal with this, it's going to be a failure. Jericho was an impossible victory. I is an impossible defeat, yet they lose. When God turns against you, the defeats can be as proportionately unnatural as victories are when he is for you. Maybe we didn't understand what being the people of God is. He tells us about the covenant, the covenant, the covenant, the covenant. He tells us over in, in Joshua chapter 1, I'll be with you, I won't leave you or forsake you, but be, be strong and courageous therefore. But don't turn from, to the right or to the left from my word that you might be successful. Meditate on the law of the Lord. In verse 18 of chapter 1, whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whatever you may com command them will be put to death. Maybe we forgot or maybe we didn't really get it what it means to be in covenant with God. You have covenants in your life. You have a marriage covenant perhaps. Maybe you have a contract, a, 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 an employment contract of some sort which is, is a covenant. Maybe you have a mortgage. That's a covenant. You pay your bills or the bank takes your house. That's how it works. That's how the covenant works. You obey the terms and conditions of the covenant and you enjoy the blessings that are promised to you. You disobey the terms and conditions of the covenant and you face the consequences of that. We're in covenant with God. Maybe you didn't realize that, that this is the covenant. The old covenant and the new covenant. We call it testament. Sometimes we don't really realize what that means. It means covenant. God has promised to be our father, our God. He's in covenant with us. He's promised to be loyal to us and care for us and never forsake us and, and, and lead us in good places and cause our, our plans to prosper and be successful. Only obey me. That's the condition of the covenant. Being the people of God means accepting certain obligations set down by God. Who has the right to set them down? He made us. These are not hard things for us or bad things for us. These are best things for us. This is how best to live. So we adopt a divinely ordered lifestyle. That's what being in covenant with God is because he plans to prosper us and give us success not to harm us. We make every decision in light of divine leadership because we have never been this way before. I don't know about you, but I haven't lived tomorrow. Do you live tomorrow? I haven't. Which means I, I don't know how to live tomorrow. 
because I don't know what tomorrow is going to be like, but God does. So I look to him and say, Lord, I I have to trust you for tomorrow because you've been there already. That's what the covenant means. It means not turning to the right or to the left. This is the way. Walk in it. It means choosing divine presence over all other things in life, over all material prosperities or any self-gain of any sort. It means loving the Lord with all of my heart and all of my mind and all of my soul and all of my body. If I have God, it means I have everything. That's what he was trying to show them. It just in Jericho, he just, just before we go on any further, it was like God took a pause and said, look, before we go any further, I just want to show you that I'm all you need. I, I can take care of you totally. I can deliver everything. You can give me everything, and you're still going to be great. You're going to be fine. What good would it do to love gifts but not love the giver? Because the gifts come with the giver. What good was it for, for Achan to have a, a designer coat and, and shekels of silver and shekels of gold and not have the Lord? What good was it? What good was it to his family? What good is it to us, Calvary Baptist Church, if we had all of the things that this world had to offer, if we were fully adorned with all the material things you could have, but we didn't have the Lord with us? We have nothing. Being a people of God means accepting certain obligations set down by God for our good. Can you imagine, um, because I think some of you are still asking, and you rightly so, but what about Achan? You know, we've heard about 36 innocent people dying. We've heard about the stupidity of the espionage. We've, we've heard about the leadership that's tanking. We've heard about the, the concerns of uh, the fact that the enemies will swamp over the whole... But what about Achan? Can you imagine the night before Joshua stands before all of the people and says, Consecrate yourselves. Because tomorrow, God is going on a sin hunt. Can you imagine if, if I were to say to you, hey, next Sunday, Jesus is coming. He's going to show up. I'm not preaching. Jesus is going to preach. And he's coming to hunt out our sin. That might be a rough week, eh? It says Jesus walks among the lampstands. said that uh, Joshua told the people, here's how it's going to roll out. Tomorrow. Guy's going to go, first of all, by tribe, and then by clan, and then by family, and then by man. Can you imagine the night Achan had? It makes you think he should have come screaming up right then to Joshua and said, It's me. I repent. I want to turn from my sin. But no. He still was thinking, I guess, that he was pulling one over on God. He was thinking maybe, maybe there's someone else who had greater sin than me. So they get up that morning and everybody comes out. And can you imagine? Joshua says, everybody but the tribe of Judah, go home. Then he, talks, then he calls out the great-grandfather of Achan's name. Then the grandfather. Now, Achan's seriously hoping his uncle has done something wrong. It says tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family. And then they had to go to man by man. Achan still wouldn't man up. 
And finally, God's finger pointed at Achan. And Joshua gives us the fourth insight when he says, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Those who bring trouble on their brothers and sisters will have trouble brought on them by God. Maybe not today. In Ezekiel, it says, The soul who sins is the one who will die. We answer personally to God. I think the great drama was played out here, and Calvin is right when he says, nothing is so hidden as to to not be revealed in its own time. Be sure your sin will find you out, Numbers 32, 23. Hebrews 4, 13 tells us that, that God sees everything. Nothing's hidden from God. The smell of our sin reaches the nostrils of God. He is so sensitized to sin that you can't hide it far enough under your tent. When I was uh, younger, we used to live um, with a bush behind us. And I always had a hankering to light fires. I I would be an arsonist if God hadn't saved me. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I'm just a fire thing. It fascinates me. And uh, it sort of runs in the family, as I found out too. But anyway... um, (laughs) It's great when God gives you those insights because you know what you were like and kids just can't get away with anything. But I, I had, um, well, they do get away with stuff. But So I, 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 um, I wanted to light a fire in um, the bush, not to burn it down, but to have a bonfire. And um, my dad caught wind of it somehow, I'm not sure how, and he said, don't you be lighting any fires in that woods. So manned with the command of my father, I quickly ran and got some matches and kindling and headed out to the woods. I thought, well, as long as I go deep enough, he'll never know. So I went deep, deep into the woods, built myself a bonfire, and thoroughly enjoyed myself. Came back in the house that night. My dad's like, you're grounded for like the rest of your life. I said, Why? You can't go into the woods for a long time. Why? I thought, how could he know? I was, I was way out there. The smell of my sin. I learned a lesson about the Heavenly Father that day. Be sure your sins will stink in his nostrils. You can't hide them. You can't go deep enough into the woods. You can't dig a hole deep enough under your tent. Where can I go to hide from God? His eyes are everywhere. Where can I go that his nostrils can't smell? But God's wrath is not the last point that's made here not the last word. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why, 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 with this gracious God, don't we repent and turn ourselves in as fugitives to him and fall upon his mercy. Why, why, why must we wait for his wrath? Why must we wait until 36 people die? Why must we wait? In Proverbs 28.13, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who forsakes them will find compassion. A great tomorrow always awaits a community serious about dealing with its sin. Why would we want to fail? Own up. So sin is removed and God is glorified and power for victory is restored. I believe that it's the hidden sins that are, that are causing obstacles and barriers to the work that God wants to do and the blessings that he wants to give. 
We dilute the purity of our character and reduce the potency of our impact. I want you to think about something before Pastor Steve comes and leads us. It's written by R. Kent Hughes on this particular incident in his book, Living on the Cutting Edge. He writes this. Hiram, he's right on, he's bang on. Listen to this. We understand the detrimental effects of outward sin. But the question is, how do the hidden sins, the sins others know nothing about, how do these hidden sins affect other believers? The answer is this. So-called hidden sins lead to a deterioration of character, reducing the ring of truth and reality of what we say and do. For example, I may give assent to the doctrines of the church. I may even teach them. I may be an elder or a preacher. I also may not be committing any outward sins, those that others can see. But if I am inwardly a sensualist or a thief or a bigot or a gossip, then my ethos, what I am, will suffer a reduction in authenticity. And any reduction in my authenticity will have a telling effect on the church. The hidden sins of God's people are what destroy so many today. The mental adulterer, the secret gossiper, the covertly hateful. The covetous reduce themselves and thereby bring defeat and discouragement to the church. Often their children fall away and their business acquaintances and neighbors have no desire for their Christianity. How we live inwardly, how we conduct ourselves when no one we know is around brings either victory and enthusiasm or defeat and discouragement to the church. God does not bless the life in which there is hidden sin. And God does not bless the church in which there is hidden sin. Father, this is totally your domain. Because it's hidden. Although we sometimes see some effects and wonder... Although we sometimes see some inauthenticity and we wonder, in reality, this stuff is hidden. It is in terms of knowledge between you and the sinner, but in terms of effects, it's infecting everybody. Lord, I pray for this quiet time of reflection and singing and thinking that you would turn this place into an altar where hearts would be laid out there and long standing hidden sins that we have been harboring and holding on to will be seen for what they are devastating Aiken's whole family lost. 36 other families devastated at the loss of a husband, a brother, a son, a grandson. There is no place for sin in God's community. Please, Lord, give us the courage to man up you to do your work of healing forgiving take us from where we are through repentance to where you want us to be I pray Lord in Jesus name Amen I kind of got a visual of this story of Achan as he brought home the Babylonian coat and the, the spoils of money and dug a hole in his tent as his children family were watching. Our hidden sins really aren't all that hidden, you know. 
there are people in our lives who, who we influence and impact. People really close to us who we care about and love. Little people sometimes. They can smell inauthenticity a mile away. And Aiken was willing for a coat and a couple of bucks to sell out his family and have them die. I'm not willing to. And I don't think you are. This stuff is way too important. The lives of our family, our children, our, our friends and our brothers and our sisters, this stuff's all too important. We're all too important to, to the Lord. He, he gave Christ to die for us. So I'm asking you, I'm urging you, begging would matter, I'd beg you. Don't keep this sin alive in your life. We're, we're heading into a really big campaign month, December. Seeking to have the Lord Jesus Christ rescue the hearts of lost people by the scores. If we could get right, all of us could get right wouldn't be a trickle. I think there'd be an amazing outbreak of the Lord in our region and people coming to Christ in massive numbers. I really believe that with my heart. I believe that healings would take place. I believe that things that we would never imagine, people who are sick in ways that we could never ever envision being healed, would be healed. And some who are going to get sick wouldn't get sick. offerings would be massive. Wouldn't be putting any notices in the bulletin. So, um, I'm going to ask if our musicians would, would be willing to do this. That I'd like to keep this place in here for a while. A place of, of honesty and authenticity before God. Pastors are going to hang around if we need to pray with you, whatever. Not going to embarrass you. You could you could you do business with God before you leave? Make sure it's all right. Make sure it's good. He forgives you. But you got to come to him. Don't wait for wrath. That's what Achan did. Don't wait for wrath. Do it now. Get right with him now. So I'm going to dismiss you after prayer. Uh, let's. Let's not make this place a place for socializing for now. If you have done business with God, all's good. God bless. We'll see you tonight. Go out in the lobby. If you still need to work some things over, please stay here. And I want to, I want to keep this place. We'll keep some music going for a while. We'll be around. We'll just keep it a bit of prayerful in here for a while, okay? Our Father and our God, this is a, a moment for us to do something real with you. Holy Spirit has settled in. I, I feel that. And you're not going to let us go until we take care of what needs to be taken care of. So, Father, I thank you for that. I praise you. We, we want to consecrate ourselves because tomorrow we need you. And the next day, and the next day. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name.